As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. Unfortunately, my colleague Tracy Alloway is out today, so it will just be me. But I'm very excited nonetheless about this episode because we are going to continue speaking about one of the more interesting and complicated, or at least seems complicated, stories developing right now in markets, and that is the situation in Turkey. And if you haven't already, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we published an episode with the economist Lutfullah Bingol, uh, based in a, in a bank at, in Istanbul, basically walking through some of the measures that the Erdogan government has taken recently to stabilize the lira. And of course, the lira had a pretty terrible 2021. It feels like, as we said on that episode, that every nine months, every year, every year and a half, there's a pretty big episode in Turkey where the currency plunges and the government engages in seemingly unorthodox monetary policy. Nonetheless, None of it seems to have worked. Inflation is extremely high. And so the argument is, or the attempt by the government is to discourage uh, domestic savers from moving their money into, into dollars and to hold their money in lira. So far, you know, this has been a, a goal for a while. Turkey is a heavily dollarized economy. By and large, though, uh, nothing has, uh, has worked. So I would encourage people to listen to that episode for a discussion of the mechanics. But of course, anything new is bound to be very controversial. And there's a lot of views and a lot of skepticism about whether anything will improve with the new measures. Uh, and so we want to continue on the topic. And of course, in the last episode, we spoke to an economist at a Turkish bank. But this time, we want to get the perspective that's a little bit more international from the international investing community. And I'm extremely excited about uh, uh, our guest. He's been on the podcast two or three times in the past, often helping us understand what's going on in EM. And I think we, we've even talked uh, Turkey specifically before, maybe in uh, 2018 or 2019. Nonetheless, uh, very excited to welcome back to the show, Paul McNamara. He's an investment director at GAM, a longtime specialist in emerging markets. And so we are going to dive right in. So, uh, Paul, welcome back to Odd Lots. Thanks very much. Before we even get to the current 
measures and the current mechanisms that the government has put in place to attempt to stabilize the lira. How would you characterize the long term issues facing the country? Why is it, in your view, that we seemingly come back to Turkey in particular, I don't know, every year or every year and a half during some episode of high inflation and extreme currency volatility? It's, it's something that tends to be particularly true of countries which have a habit of getting themselves into trouble. Turkey isn't remotely in as much trouble as Argentina, but uh, the, the, the mindset there is the same, is that if you know a country is prone to you know, 15 20% or more corrections in the currency, to overnight huge rises in, in interest rates or big drops in bond prices, you tend to, be, to react much faster. Uh, and this goes as much for you know people with a bit of money in the bank. Do they switch their money from liras to dollars or back again, or take their money out of the bank? You know, when you get this much volatility, it kind of creates its own volatility because people feel the need to react much faster, and just that willingness to react more quickly kind of creates sort of enhances the volatility. So you get into this kind of volatility promoting spiral. Now, how much of this spiral would you say is a function of, say, domestic institutions? And of course, people perceive the Erdogan government to be engaged in, I would say, highly unorthodox views of how monetary policy works, lowering rates, uh, blaming high rates for high inflation, etc. How much of this spiral is sort of the government's disinclination towards more orthodox policies versus sort of more behavioral explanations on the part of uh, Turkish savers and their disinclination to hold lira. Like what, what is, why in particular does Turkey seem to exhibit this, this doom loop? I, I mean, I think, I think it's really interesting because it's, it's kind of unusual to have a crisis which is, which is largely voluntary. It's, it's not like you have to do some sort of thought experiment, you know, that what would be the counterfactual if Turkey had higher interest rates, because we know that, that before uh, President Erdogan sacked Mr. Akbal, the, the previous head of the central bank, we had much higher interest rates and we had a lira that had been appreciating solidly for a couple of months. So in terms of the, the trigger for this, this particular situation, it's entirely, I think, on the, on the shoulders of the government uh, that they decided that they were going to you know, sort of play, play games, I think is, is maybe a little bit casual, but they decided that, you know, that they could conduct a complete experiment in monetary policy. I mean, I think there are longer term reasons why Turkey has been particularly prone to, to, to this boom-bust cycle. It's a country where the external deficit, you know, dips on a regular basis uh, into, into deficit, uh, into very substantial deficit. It's got much, much lower level of foreign exchange reserves than you know, pretty much any of the other big uh, EMs, except maybe South Africa. You know, so it, it has fewer natural safeguards. I mean, I think the history of the volatility makes the the consequences of policy experiments more serious but you know primarily the you know the the recent huge bout of volatility was a political choice by the government so you know, why is that like when we talk about these EMs that flare up in the news from time to time and you, Turkey 
South Africa, Brazil uh, from time to time. What is it uh, structurally? And you mentioned the lack of foreign exchange reserves and the sort of the thin cushion that the country has. Is there something structural about, well, what is it that I guess about the way the Turkish economy is structured in terms of domestic industry and so forth, such that it maintains these vulnerabilities? And in your view, does a policy exist that could reverse some of these factors? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the very substantial role for foreign currency and especially the U.S. dollar is is definitely something that makes Turkey much more vulnerable. You know that depositors regularly switch their money between lira and dollars, uh, depending on you know on what they perceive the outlook for the currency to be. But probably more important is that an awful lot of the onshore debt is in U.S. dollars. So not only do Turkish depositors keep a decent chunk of their savings in, well, well, I'll keep saying dollars. I mean, it does include especially euros. There's a few other currencies, but we'll we'll say dollars for simplicity. Is that uh, not just genuine foreign debt, I mean, debt owed to external institutions, but also onshore, the Turkish banks lend dollars to domestic borrowers. And if you owe if you owe a lot of dollars and the lira plunges, then you're going to end up chasing the lira. Right. And that's especially true if if you're, say, running um, real estate or something like that, something without a natural stream of dollars. I mean, if you're a big exporter, then I think it makes a lot of sense. Your revenues are in dollars. It makes a lot of sense to have your debt in dollars. Sure. But in Turkey, you know, a, a big it's got a very, very uh, strong and well, I mean, not always vibrant real estate sector. You know, it, it, for a couple of years, I mean, it, it, before COVID, the share of real estate construction was ticking up towards the level we saw before the euro crisis in places like Spain. And if you're borrowing dollars without a natural source of dollars, then then the, the very big role of the dollar in the economy is going to. Um, create volatility in itself, because it does mean that when the dollar strengthens, instead of making people look, oh, the dollar is expensive, I won't buy some now, it's I desperately need these dollars, and if it moves even more, I'm going to be even further underwater. So I think the big role of the dollar, not just on the deposit side, but also on the debt side, is very important there. So this gets to, you know, this this gets to our discussion in our last episode in Turkey, which is people look at Turkey and they say, okay, what's what's all this, you know, cutting interest rates where they should be hiking them and diminishing the independence of the central bank, sacking the central bank and so forth. But how much is the core issue really the high level of dollarization? And is there an argument that nothing can be solved or no stability can be achieved until that's reversed in some manner? It's fairly clear that you know that that the the high level of dollarization creates more volatility. It makes any bad policy decision, any big external change, you know, be it a spike in the oil price or something like that, it right. will generate more volatility in a highly dollarized economy like Turkey. But you know, uh, I mean, dollarization is by no means unique to Turkey. You know, yes. that we've seen. I mean, most of the economies of Central Europe 
were to a significant degree, maybe not to the same degree as Turkey, you know, oriented to, you know, first the Deutschmark and and later the euro. You know, there was a huge role for foreign debt in the, the Asian financial crisis going back a bit further. A lot of Latin America still has a significant role of dollar for, for, for dollarization. But, you know, an awful lot of countries across the emerging world have managed to reduce the level of dollarization in their economies. And, th- and that happens when they just manage to maintain macroeconomic stability. Uh, I mean, the, the, the one thing we haven't mentioned yet is inflation. Sure. And, but the current right. crash, or whatever you want to call it, is primarily about inflation. I mean, nobody really cares that much. You know, the, 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 there's no suggestion, if you look globally, that foreign investors demand a certain level of real, of real interest rates generally mm-hmm. to, to put money into a foreign economy or that, you know, domestics will always prefer to have you know to hold foreign currency if real interest rates get too low but in the specific situation we have here where inflation is is well i mean even before the latest round of nightmarish numbers it, inflation was already very high and to have this perception that that any sort of orthodox policy or not even or even an unorthodox policy which had some kind of logic behind it you know, that there was no possibility yeah. of, of anything like that. That's what's kind of creating its own kind of spiral because we saw the big drop in the lira. And the result of that is that the latest CPI that was announced was 36% year on year, including 13.5% in one month. And the PPI is is 80%. I mean, this is inflation ticking up from sort of nuisance and, you know, minor dis- disruptive factor to something that becomes a real problem that makes taking economic decisions, even with a horizon of a few months, really very difficult. The key problem is not, oh, you know, interest rates are here rather than there. It's that uh, inflation is very, very high and the government either doesn't have a clue or doesn't care. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On inflation specifically, I mean, how much of this is just, I guess I would say, the inverse of the lira? And so how much of it is passed through from imports and so mechanistically when the lira weakens, inflation goes up, et cetera, or are there other dynamics at play? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of other other stuff okay. uh, at work. I mean, as, you know, as a very very loose rule of thumb, 
the estimate of the pass through, you know, say is is very very roughly about a quarter or somewhere between a quarter and a fifth. So if you get a ten percent uh, rise in inflation. Uh, sorry, 10% drop in the lira, then that'll probably add somewhere between two and two and a half percent to inflation. So uh, it, it's part of it. But the factors which are at work everywhere else in the world, which is, you know, a huge buildup of cash balances, both yeah. at firms and at individual and household levels, people being pushed out of the economy and then suddenly kind of coming back, bottlenecks, big rise in oil prices, because right. all uh, energy, effectively all Turkey's energy needs are imported, uh, which is which is quite unusual in EM. So the right. the lira is a very important part of it. It's a particularly important part in the recent big spike, but it's overlaid on a general global reflationary picture, which I think may uh, affect uh, Turkey more than more than a, a lot of others as well. And of course, you've got stuff like the government just uh, pushed through a very very big uh, rise. In the minimum wage, for example, you know that the, the, there's inflationary uh, factors all over. Zooming out for a second, and you mentioned that, of course, heavy dollarization is not unique to Turkey, so it's a factor, but it can't explain everything. And you noted that other EMs either have been able to deal with dollarization; it hasn't created the same level of volatility, or they've actually been able to reduce dollarization over time. What's worked? Like, is there a playbook more broadly, setting aside Turkey and what would work? Is there a consistent playbook that you've seen in your career watching different ones where it's like, yes, this is a this has been a path towards reducing uh, the dollarization and the the risk that comes with that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's extremely simple macro stability. I mean, obviously, inflation coming down and staying down. I mean, it looked as if Turkey was well on this course. I mean, actually, the best part of a decade ago now, when they got inflation well down and persistently yeah. into single digits, then you start to see the currency stabilize, you see real appreciation. It, it's not just a question of inflation. You need to have the banking sector seen as safe. You need to see government uh, debt seen as effectively risk-free locally. But in a word, stability. If domestic institutions are stable, if, if domestic macro variables are stable, then people don't want the uncertainty of owning a foreign currency. Because because then owning foreign currency becomes a two-way risk. You get the domestic currency appreciating, and the, it's, then it's the, the holders of foreign currency who get hit very hard. I mean, a particularly good example is what happened in Poland and Hungary from the other side, when people who'd taken mortgages in Swiss francs in particular, but in foreign currencies, the volatility between foreign currencies and local currencies makes both borrowers and lenders want to prefer domestic currency, not on the grounds of wanting uh, a directional move that looks after them, but just on the grounds of certainty that you will not, you know, even in somewhere like Poland or Hungary, you can comfortably get a move in Euro Zloty or Euro, Euro Forint of five, six, seven percent. And and people don't want that uncertainty. So, I mean, the, the natural preference is for people to, to use as their unit of count the domestic currency. And you need Turkish level disruption to chase people out of domestic currency. This gets into when people pinpoint Erdogan or when they talk about the diminishing role, the diminishing independence of the central bank or the frequent changing of key uh, central bankers or ministerial points. This is where you would say it sounds like is a real negative contributing factor. Essentially, 
essentially the uncertainty factor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's an attitude of of the government want kind of wants to have its cake and eat it. That they they want low inflation, but they you know they also want high growth. They want financial conditions which are good for the good for it well especially the property sector but you know for rich people generally you know and and a reluctance to to recognize you know that that there are trade offs in economics i mean it, it, specifically the idea that the best way to reduce inflation is to cut interest rates you know which has been repeated uh, and and actually loud amplified as we went through december it just adds to the volatility and you know and, and it's the same thing that they've intervened very heavily we think that the intervention since the last couple of weeks of november was ticking up towards 20 billion dollars and you know and and gross reserves are you know are, are what about 120 130 billion dollars never mind net that they've been running these big swap books with the domestic banks which distort the the usefulness for the figures that uh, under the previous, uh, well, a couple of finance ministers ago, Mr. Albayrak, the state banks were de facto intervening to keep the lira stable. It's this incoherent mismatch of ideas based on the idea that things are only really going wrong from Turkey in Turkey because of foreigners, especially people like me, and not because they have a policy set up that is designed to produce inflation. So let's get to some of the more recent moves. And it seems like the core idea, and again, we discussed this recently, is how to give people, you know, obviously there, and you, you laid it out in the beginning as well, there's this, people are very quick to buy more dollars. And there is this sort of loop that happens, the dollar strengthens and people want to buy more. So you get these very extreme moves, very rapid in uh, dollar lira. And that's, uh, of course, destabilizing. So the idea for the government that the government is like, how do you give people protect lira protection without encouraging them to move to dollars? And so, okay, we're going to the basic idea is we're going to pay you. You you keep your money in lira in a uh, for a certain amount of time, and if the lira weakens during that, we'll compensate you by giving giving you more lira. What is your sort of initial read on uh, the, these types of programs or this program in particular? It, it looks kind of incoherent. I mean, there's an, there's an attempt to change people's expectations, you know, and thus create a kind of a virtuous circle that people will move their money out of dollars into lira, yeah. stabilize the banking system, and, and it will work fine. You know, and, and if you could just somehow spontaneously make people start shifting their money out of dollars into lira, creating a bid for lira, stabilize the currency, bring inflation down, uh, you could see how, that, how this would work. The trouble is that this is, and, and I think your previous interviewee made the same point, that this is the government writing effectively uh, put options on yes. the lira. Now, if you write a, an at-the-money put option on the lira right now, it's going to cost you about 11% of the sum insured. Even if kind of lira, you know, lira volatility or implied volatility goes down to the, the lowest levels it's been for the last couple of years, it's still going to cost you somewhere close to 5% of the amount. So th this is the government writing a very, very valuable put option for free. Right. And that's, you know, we, we saw something, I mean, 
um, the counter argument, and I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not making an exact comparison, but the logic is quite similar to, for example, the uh, the Irish government deciding to guarantee its banks right. in uh, 2008 on the basis that if people believe the government stands behind the banks, they won't pull their money out of the banks, you know, and th- and therefore the banks won't need protecting, and it and it's effectively um, a, a free option, a free bit of underwriting. Right. I mean, what happened in Ireland? Is of course that the banks were insolvent, were basically unsafe at any speed. You know that that no matter who you know, and that the Irish government clearly couldn't really afford uh, to underwrite the, the banking sector as it was. So all you really got was effectively a free lunch for the existing debtors of Anglo-Irish Bank, who who got you know fully repaid uh, from a bank that was very subsequently very 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 clearly insolvent. And so the, the worry is this: that this is this is an option that the that the Turkish bank and and if you look at it like this, I mean the logic would be that around half the Turkish deposit base right now is is in dollars. It comes out at something like one hundred and fifty billion dollars. The lira moved fifty percent, sort of peak to trough, or not even peak to trough, fifty percent move in about a month. You know, there's no way the Turkish government can afford to pay for moves of that magnitude. Uh, I mean, right. the idea of making a guarantee and therefore it never happens to be, never has to be used is is obviously quite attractive. But you have to have some sort of logic that if the guarantee does have to be used, uh, it's it, it's not going to make everybody's credit worse. And then you, you just have the, the, the banks contaminating what is still a, a pretty mu- a pretty clean government balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be the key point because we have seen over the years various governments or central banks essentially make a uh, a blanket promise, and many and the successful ones never actually end up being used. And the one that you mentioned, the Irish government, but the one that really stands out to my mind as highly effective was uh, Mario Draghi's OMT when they said, you know, if a country gets into financial trouble and if it's willing to undergo a program of restructuring, then the the ECB will backstop its debt. And that close spreads extremely fast. And no country had to no country ever uh, entered into a program. And the OMT was never used. But regardless, it was an extremely successful program. We saw it similarly here uh, in March 2020 with the uh, Fed uh, promising to back municipal bonds for cities and states that got into trouble. In the end, that basically did the trick. I think a couple localities ended up using it, but by and large, the, the, the mechanism wasn't used much. You know, obviously, the ECB and the Fed, you can't beat them. They have essentially, you know, they're free-floated, they're, their own currencies. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't beat the Fed in dollars. You can't beat the ECB in euros. Right. But, uh, I mean, what the Turks are saying is that, you know, they're effectively underwriting a dollar debt. I mean, whether or not they say they're paying it in lira doesn't really matter. It means that they're underwriting a dollar debt and the central bank right. of Turkey cannot print dollars. Right. So in theory, they're only guaranteeing you lira. So technically, they're not they're not guaranteeing you dollars. But if they're guaranteeing a level of lira dollar stability, which I think is how you character, then de facto, they're trying to they're promising to give you some sort of they're, they're implicitly offering to sort of pay dollars, it seems like. And that is something that the government, neither the government nor the central bank can do. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons you want to hold, or you're willing to hold lira, is that it, you can freely convert it into dollars at any time. If we get it to the point where you have a dollar lira spiral that is threatening, you know, that that is moving the way it was in December, the last thing you want to be doing is printing huge amounts of lira and giving those to people right. who treasure. Uh, dollar dollar lira stability because then they'll just rush out and then when when the time comes they'll buy dollars and make the spiral worse. It seems like to me that the nightmare scenario would be that you get significant take up of the new accounts, but not significant enough such that it actually puts a floor into the lira. So in theory, if everyone were to uh, put their lira into these locked accounts, it seems to me that that could have a stabilizing effect. But it also is if you put have a lot of people putting their money in these accounts, but not enough, you could still have significant lira weakness and the payout gets triggered such that the government is then forced to print more lira, accelerating the downward spiral. Yeah, I, I mean, the argument is if you compare it to an insurance contract, I mean, the yeah. way the conventional insurance is, you know, you insure your car. If somebody sets fire to your car, we'll, we'll give you the money. But what these guys are saying, or what the Turkish authorities are effectively saying is, you know, if we insure your car, we will make it much less likely that your car catches fire. But if your car catches fire, <laughs> then we'll set fire to your house as well. Is that the consequences of, of a big dollar lira spiral become worse through the existence of these insurance contracts of these financial products? They might make a crisis uh, less likely, but if a crisis does happen, it's um, it, it's going to be much worse because the sovereign balance sheet is is contaminated as well, and you're printing lira at the very worst time to be printing more lira. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, what are you watching for in the weeks ahead to see if some sense of stability is going to be achieved or if, you know, we'll see a further downward spiral? 
Well, I mean, two things. One is just what happens to the lira by itself, because obviously we saw this massive sort of, I think, uh, something like a 30% intraday move. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing or the relevant thing to us is at the time people are saying, well, everybody's clearly buying into this idea. It's going to work. But it's, you know, it subsequently turned out that there was very, very heavy intervention by the Turkish Central Bank even while the speech was taking place and presumably timed in order to coincide. I mean, I mean I've seen various uh, estimates, but most of them, you know, on the day alone. And this is after markets had, local markets had shut. It's about 6 p.m. London, so kind of eight, nine percent local time. That the that the the central bank kind of put somewhere between four and five billion dollars in sort of to, to, to buy up lira and that uh, thus ramping the lira very, very much. And it would be Interesting to see, you know, just can the lira sustain these improved valuations even without? But the the, the other thing that we think is 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 probably more of a medium term variable and and will drive other things is domestic credit growth because the re you know it's it's not just a question of what's the level of interest rates, it's also the quantity of new credit. And Turkey's problems, certainly since the global financial crisis, have always coincided with a, with growth in domestic lending. But uh, it doesn't really matter if it's liras or dollars. Is that lending picks up, activity picks up, that creates demand for imports. It also creates leakage into into dollars, and it tends to weaken the currency. So what we need to see, I think, above all, is monetary discipline. Not some, not just in terms of the actual level of interest rates, both the policy rate and effective rates. It, it's very hard to see how a level of credit growth compatible with strong domestic demand growth is also compatible with lira stability. I mean, how much of, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic globally and obviously even in the U.S., you know, there's uh, inflation is elevated right now. And there is a hope that when things normalize, whatever that means, that, uh, you know, inflation will moderate. How much of the stress on uh, Turkey's economy is in part a extreme version of what many places are seeing and in theory, should moderate somewhat just if, uh, you know, the health situation and the global travel situation and the business situation were to begin to normalize? Uh, I mean, specifically for Turkey, a calmer coronavirus situation is terribly important because the tourist season is incredibly important to their balance yeah. of payments. So, you know, if if the this summer looks like 2021 or better, that's very positive for Turkey. If it looks like 2020, then, you know, then really that's seriously problematic for Turkey. I mean, in terms of the global forces, you know, I mean, Turkey is unusual in terms of relying on external energy for for essentially all its energy needs. So very high that very high oil price, the very high gas prices that those are a big negative. But I think you know Turkey's you know inflation in the mid thirties is a point where yeah. they can't just rely on external factors to ba- to bail them out. They need to get the policy mix more right than it's been so far. Opinions vary. I, I, I know that your previous interviewee was much more positive on the sure. on, on the new savings plan than I am, but it's going to require policymaker inaction, even in the most benevolent scenario. If they keep doing what they're doing, they will be able to have a crisis. So at some point, you know, in theory, 
a currency weakens significantly that crushes imports. I guess it makes exports more competitive, tourism, maybe uh, a few other uh, a few other industries. How do things stabilize? And, you know, obviously, look, we can we could talk about how rough things are and the problems of policy. But at some point, whether we're talking about the currency or whether we're talking about uh, real assets in the economy, you know, something becomes a buy and you don't if you wait for good things to emerge, perhaps it's too late. What do you look for? And not just Turkey specifically, but, you know, in other sort of like EMs that really like uh, hit rough times. What do you look for to see uh, inflection points and when it's like, yes, it's still really bad, but it's all, you know, priced in whatever that means? Yeah, I mean, inflection inflection points tend to be much more about what's going on than valuations. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there is no absolute level for a dollar owed by Turkey. You know, I mean, at the moment, the external debt is trading close enough to par that makes no difference. But, you know, it's not there's no feeling that, you know, a dollar debt price of 30 cents and the dollar, a Turkish lira rate that's 40% below long-term trend. There's no absolute level of valuation that on its own constitutes a buy. And you can see this, for example, in the in the really extreme cases, places like yeah. Lebanon or Venezuela or Argentina. And I absolutely am not saying that Turkey's in the same class as those countries, but you can't rely on valuation alone to make the case to buy. You do we do need to find a situation where we think that the Turkish situation is sustainable. That could be any, you know, it could be one that I'm wrong, that inflation peaks, starts to drift down, that, you know, that, uh, that President Erdogan can do a, a victory lap and uh, while I'm looking <laughs> for a new job. You know, it can be just that things start getting better by themselves. It could be at the other extreme that they have to close the banks or ration depositors or convert dollar dollar deposits into lira, none of which I'm saying is particularly likely. I'm just kind of presenting very, very extreme cases of, of what could happen. I don't think, you know, this sort of crash scenario is likely at all. But we, what we do need to see is something like the lira stabilizing. And at the moment, you know, with, with, with still half the deposit base in lira, as long as the lira is this volatile, I don't think volatility will continue to be self-sustaining. It's not about valuations. You need some way or other to get to a level where where the country moves to a sustainable footing, where inflation stops rising, the currency stabilizes, and so on. Uh, let's say, you know, before we go, and I, this I found this to be very helpful. But before we go, you know, mentioned the ongoing pandemic. What is your sort of broader view going in? You know, as we look to twenty twenty two, one of the stories for years has really been. Currency, you know, we had the dollar was extremely strong in 2021, surprising a lot of people, especially as more rate hikes began to get priced in for 2022. Uh, U.S. risk assets, uh, once again, continue to outperform the world. What is your sort of like broader things you're looking at in the in the in the EM landscape, maybe beyond Turkey? Yeah, I, I mean, it's this is going to sound like a terribly predictable answer, but you know, as long as the Fed remains hawkish. And, you know, I think three hikes this year, uh, I mean, might not be hawkish by Volcker standards, but, you know, it's still seen sure. as, a, as a hawkish. That's a difficult environment for EM, and it's a difficult environment for anybody who's only, you know, where a stronger dollar is a problem. 
you know, the, the, the ideal thing would be a big growth recovery outside the US. Because when, when, when growth is very US centric, as it basically, you know, almost always is, that tends to be a strong dollar environment. And that tends to be a difficult environment for EM to, to prosper in. But I think, you know, number one, the Fed and number two, growth, even in the developed world, but outside the US are what we're most focused on. Well, Paul, it is always a pleasure to speak to you. And this was extremely helpful context on Turkey. So uh, thank you for coming out Odd Lots. Thanks very much. Well, obviously, Tracy's not here, so I can't go back and forth with her, but we got two, I I don't know if I would say competing, but certainly different takes on the lira and what's going on in Turkey. The first one was a little bit more optimistic about the government's ability to encourage uh, domestic savers to hold their money in lira to essentially use that ability to write a lira put option to uh, discourage more dollarization. However, as Paul noted, you know, the issue with the government writing such an option in this case is that unlike, say, with the ECB or the Fed, you know, they're not it's not strictly a matter of printing the own currency because the implicit promise is to hold the lira stable relative to the dollar. And so it's a little trickier, but I would have found it very useful. I don't have a side. Obviously, I'm just a journalist, but I found it very useful to get multiple perspectives. And maybe we'll talk more Turkey, but I found it uh, uh, useful to get multiple perspectives because, as the cliche goes, that's what makes a market. So we'll just uh, leave it there and people can decide for themselves and we'll follow the uh, currency and uh, the lira and we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll have more episodes. But uh, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow my uh, co-host Tracy Alloway at Tracy Alloway. Follow our guest Paul McNamara, EM expert. Uh, His handle is at M underscore Paul McNamara. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.